Hello and welcome to Mashley at the Movies. I'm Matt. I'm Ashley. And we are back with another edition of our Criterion series, where we talk about a movie that is available from um, Criterion. So they are a company, they are a distribution label, they also have a streaming website or service, and yeah, they, they put out uh, physical media, DVDs, Blu-rays, now some 4Ks of classic films or uh, movies that they deem to be important uh, or, or just unique uh, or uh, hold a certain um, place in cinema that uh, folks might find interesting. And uh, yeah, so we've been doing this series for coming up on three years. And uh, this edition is a movie from 1938 called Holiday. And here to talk with us about Holiday is uh, Will McKinley. Hi, Will. Hey, Matt and Ashley. <laughs> uh, we're excited to have Will back with us. Uh, he has actually been on the show twice before, both times in December. <laughs> I was just looking at my, the, the, on our Skype here. It's like we, the last time we convened was exactly a year ago. <laughs> so we're on some sort of like seasonal holiday rhythm here. <laughs> yes, yes. So I think I'm like the uh, the Dean Martin of the Mad Way at the Movies <laughs> podcast or Perry Como. Maybe I'll sing Ave Maria at the end. Wrap that would it be up. awesome. Yes. You, uh, <laughs> uh, so, Will, why don't you tell folks um, a little bit about Holiday? Well, <clears throat> all right. So I did some Google Googling and I'm going to start with something interesting that I found. Um, this is a quote <clears throat> adapted by Donald Ogden Stewart and Sidney Buckman from Philip Barry's 1928 play, Holiday offers an indictment of the patriarchy, suggests that a traditional lifestyle is not for everyone, and allows Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn to turn some gender stereotypes upside down. For a film made just four years after the motion picture production code took the teeth out of Hollywood, Holiday pushes its share of thematic envelopes. And that was written by uh, some guy named Will McKinley (laughs) for Get TV back in 2016. That was the first piece that I wrote for Get TV, um, the TV channel, back when it was a classic film channel competing with TCM. And then when they hired me to be their classic film blogger, they switched the format to classic TV, and then I wrote the next 153 pieces about classic TV shows. So, um, so sorry for that aside. That's a little bit of a you know personal details about me. Oh, and here's the siren, Matt, that I promised you would never happen. Here oh. it is, live from New York. It's the fire engines. Well, we can't. But really no, but it. but for the summary, I'll give you the summary now. Um, uh, with the with the siren uh, sound effects. (laughs) A working class free thinker falls for the daughter of one of the richest men in America, creating a culture clash that's exacerbated by her disaffected older sister, Catherine Hepburn, alcoholic younger brother, Lou Ayers, and the young man's surrogate parents, played by Edward Everett Horton and Jean Dixon. Um, So that's the, that's the, you know, the summary, um, Basically, it's about a vacation fling that two people take a little bit too far. Um, And really, who among us has not had a vacation fling (laughs) 
that, you know, you're like, oh, this is the one for me. And then you realize after the vacation is over, you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, and, and um, I mean, I have one of those. I, I genuinely have one of those. Um, wow. But anyway, but this is a film that has a lot of, it has a lot of, uh, I connect with this film uh, emotionally in a lot of ways. I mean, I love old movies and have for my entire life, but I was so glad that you asked me to talk about this one because it's literally like, it's sort of like a mission statement for me. It's like a defining film, both as a classic film fan, but as a human being for me. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes this movie so special is that Yes, it's a romantic comedy with two very charismatic leads, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, who have wonderful chemistry. So it's that, but it's about so much more. Like you've like you've already hinted at. I mean, it's um, it asks deep questions about you know what is our what should our purpose be in life, and you know can wealth and materialism bring happiness, and you know themes like conformity versus nonconformity. I mean, these are all kind of deep questions that you don't necessarily expect to to meet in a romantic comedy. Well, and also in a romantic comedy from like 84 <laughs> years ago, right. you know, I mean, so many people are like, oh, you know, I don't like to watch old movies because they're boring and it's like, I can't relate to them in any way. This movie has so many like core relatability issues about it. It's just, it's just amazing. You oh, know, yeah. it's stunning to me. Yeah, this was a movie that um, I had never seen before. But Ashley, I was out of town uh, a few months ago, and Ashley streamed it. And when I got back, he's like, oh, I watched this movie. It's really good. And he was <laughs> telling me about it. And it just seemed to be, you know, sometimes he'll watch something, and I'm not around. And he'll say he watched something, but kind of leave it at that. But he was really like, this seemed to have made an impact on him. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I went out and bought the Criterion Blu-ray and, uh, you know, and then I thought, I thought of you, Will, you know, I should, we should, we should invite Will back to do an episode about it. And I watched it. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I did. Cause, um, it's, 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 it's pretty, it's interesting. It starts out a little creakily for me. And, and what I mean by that is it starts out like, um, a kind of a year old, like typical thirties, um, movie of this nature where i don't know there's just kind of characters who are walking around talking quickly and <laughs> i don't know i wasn't really connecting with anybody at the, uh, in the first 10 minutes maybe and mm -hmm. then you know kind of once Cary grant gets to this palatial house that i think is in new york city that belongs to um the seaton family which is you know where Catherine hepburn is a member of that family as well as so, um the woman who he's going to marry or supposed to marry that's kind of when things pick up for me anyway and uh by the end of the movie i felt so much for so many of these characters and their situations um yeah it, it's interesting because so <clears throat> there's also a um so the play written by philip barry opened on broadway in 1928 and it ran for like a year uh and by the way the the understudy for the lead role was drum roll, Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> so she had a she had a, a connection to this show, to this play, and this character 
for like a full decade before she played her on screen. Although she only went on, on, on she went only went on on Broadway one time, and apparently like it didn't go very well. Um, but she had a connection, and in fact, when she auditioned for the very same director, George Cukor, for her first film in 1932, she did a scene from Holiday. And I guess Cukor kept that in the back of his mind. So six years later, when Columbia acquired this property from RKO, she was the first person he thought of. But um, the 1930 film, you mentioned the Blu-ray, which, by the way, I got from one of my nieces for my birthday a couple of weeks ago. So it was perfect timing. Um, also included on the Blu-ray, Blu-ray is the 1930 version of the film, which you use the word creaky or creakily. <laughs> you want to talk about creaky, <laughs> watch the 1930 version of the film. Now I happen to be a giant fan of pre-code films and, and early talkies. So I love these, but it's fascinating to watch early talkies, particularly ones based on stage plays and particularly ones made in like 1929, 30, because they're literally film plays. Hmm. They shot them with multiple cameras and they have their live cut like a TV sitcom, you know? And so all the, like the wide shots are gigantic. There's no, <laughs> close-ups there's no there's nothing that you would associate with film like just with a film (laughs) it looks like a play and but it's really interesting to watch the first adaptation of this with Anne Harding in the Katharine Hepburn role who got an Oscar nomination for a pretty stagey performance um so I think we, before we even talk about the film, we agree that the Blu-ray is definitely worth checking out. And if you get it, make sure to watch the first version as well, because it's sort of like, I think it gives you a renew, it gives you a, a different perspective on the, the 1938 film. And one thing you'll notice in particular is, Matt, that first, I don't know, seven, eight minutes of the film, none of that's in the play. All of it's added. Basically, the film starts with Cary Grant's car pulls up to the rich people's house and he walks in. Um, and in the 1938 film, they added this whole establishing scene where Cary Grant's character first goes to visit his surrogate parents, um, who are played by Edward Everett Horton, famous character actor. Uh, and Gene Dixon, and it's basically like they, they sort of added that to establish the relationship between Cary Grant's character and these two older characters, which they're in the original film and the original play, but they're friends of the rich girl, not of the young man. Hmm. So um, that's one of the many changes that that they made in adapting the film to a more sort of you know, cinematic product in 1938. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I I didn't know much about this movie. I mean, I knew that it was called Holiday and that Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn were the stars. And that's about all I knew going in. And, you know, 
you talk you're you're right well that opening scene in, in the 38 version that we're talking about uh where you know Cary Grant uh goes to the apartment of his surrogate parents and talks with them for a little bit and then he goes to the to the uh massive home of the woman that he met 10 days ago and is going to marry um i was just expecting that to be Catherine Hepburn <laughs> and then when that character arrives it's played by actress Doris Nolan and I was like, wait, what? Uh, and, and then I realized, oh, and then Catherine Hepburn makes an appearance as the sister. And it's interesting, like, I, you know, this is a 1938 movie. It's it's not pre-code anymore. It's during the code. And I I sometimes, you know, I, I was wondering, like, okay, is Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, are they going to end up together? I mean, surely <laughs> they are. But, like, how are they going to subvert this relationship that he's already got? with her sister and whatever. And I think that the way that they weave the, the plot for this film is, is I, I wasn't sure they were going to be able to stick the landing on it, <laughs> but I think that they, they did. So I was really happy with, with how that, that all transpired. It all seemed very true to the characters and even bolstered, I think who each of the characters were for better and for worse. Well, you mentioned, I mean, you the, using, you use the word true, which is one thing that I really, I love about it. There's so much truth in this story. Uh, you know, like, don't change yourself for somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, don't fall into the trap of adulthood. Um, you know, and I think the, the the core message, and it's like, you can't talk about this film without spoiling it. Yes, if you have a movie with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, <laughs> yes, they're going to get together at the end. Sorry, we spoiled it. <laughs> but the core message, like, is that companionate love is the best kind of love. You know, because he, he Cary Grant's character basically goes on, has a vacation fling in the week before Christmas and, you know, um, comes back and realizes that he picked the wrong sister and you know he then spends an hour and a half figuring it out although if you watch the movie you're like i think i marked it i think i called the mark it was like 11 minutes in it's when they're standing on the the elevator and carrie's like uh let's let's keep this fun and she's like no and then you're like okay they're not the right couple (laughs) And you're 11 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I. Uh, you mentioned the actress who played the sister. What was her name? Diane. Oh. Uh, Doris Nolan. Doris, Doris Nolan, Nolan. Yeah. If there's a weak point for me in the movie, it's it, it's maybe that, I don't know if it's that character or that actress, but I couldn't, I was not convinced that, because Catherine Hepburn adores her. And Cary Grant, at the beginning of the film, adores her, and mm-hmm. I, I could never really understand why. That's 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 my only little quibble about the about the plot. You know what? Can I can I can I back you up on that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's that's a that's a very perceptive thing to say, and it's the only. If anybody was like, "What's the one?" Uh, you know, whatever drawback about the film or one thing about the film that's not perfect. If you watch the 1930 version, um, you know who plays the sister? Mary Astor, right? Mary Astor. And she blows 
Anne Harding, she blows the Catherine Hepburn character completely out of the water because Mary Astor shows up in 1930 with this kind of loose conversational style and she's surrounded by everybody doing this like you know projecting <laughs> to the to the rafters and she's so pretty and she's so natural and she's so good and you really believe what Johnny loves about her and what you know uh what Linda loves about her and you don't feel honestly you don't feel that way it's like I don't believe unless the only thing, the only like only way I can sort of excuse it is that I bet on that vacation in Lake Placid <laughs> that she basically played somebody other than herself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you go on vacation and you pick up a dude on the side of the road with skis <laughs> And, you know, you do things you would never do before. And, you know, you're sort of trying out a different persona. Mm-hmm. And then she gets home and she's immediately back to her old self. Yeah. Well, one thing we haven't even made clear to folks who maybe haven't seen this movie is that, uh, you know, she's not told Cary Grant that she is wealthy and comes from a wealthy family. So, you know, when he goes to her house for the first time he actually has to ask the cab driver like where are we at he, the cab driver's like where's the address that you gave me to go to because she gave Cary Grant her address she's like meet me here this is my house uh on this date and time so Cary Grant is blown away by the fact that she is is a wealthy um you know he assumes she works there yes right <laughs> yeah so yeah you're right Will she probably was you know playing a a, a role or maybe trying out a different aspect of herself <laughs> on that vacation. But that was the problem I had. I was, you know, seeing her post vacation, I was trying to figure out, so what is it that he was seeing in her exactly? <laughs> but yeah. Well, and well, two things about that. One is that that scene, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is where Cary Grant goes to visit basically the daughter of one of the richest men in America and goes in through the servant's entrance <laughs> You know, and then when the butler like hops up out of his chair, Carrie then like tries to help the butler on with his jacket. Like he <laughs> reaches out and, and it's like the first of all, the movie Holiday is the movie I, I show I tell people to watch when they're like, Cary Grant's great, but he plays himself in every movie. He doesn't play himself in every movie. He I mean he's Cary Grant, so you always know he's Cary Grant, but in this film he's like you know, goofy and, you know, sort of, you know, and charming. And, you know, um, he's not the Cary Grant of, say, the Philadelphia story. He's a different guy. And, <laughs> um, you know, I just, I love how kind of loose and silly and goofy he is. And, um, you know, I love the way, one of my favorite line deliveries ever from Cary Grant is like, First time he walks into that main room of the house and after the son leaves to go to church and Johnny Cary Grant's character looks at all the opulence around him and just says, what do people do? (laughs) Right. Which is exactly what you or I would say if we went into some absurdly gigantic, ridiculous New York City house. Like, what do people do to make this kind of money? (laughs) You know, so it's just. 
it's another totally like relatable moment mm-hmm. in the movie. In a movie, I think that's filled with relatable moments. <laughs> it's funny. I agree with you totally about Cary Grant and how he comes off in this movie. But what I found kind of funny is, I think, and this is maybe another thing that prevented me from getting into it in the first few minutes is when he arrives at um, his surrogate parents' house or apartment, the way he's talking is, is cause I feel like he, his, his, he changes a little bit in this movie uh, either intentionally or unintentionally, but that first scene or so he sounds like the upper crust Cary Grant that like Tony Curtis makes fun of um, <laughs> in some like it hot where he adopts that, you know, he adopts that Cary Grant. Voice. <laughs> and I swear, like, I'm like, Oh, here's Cary Grant sounding like Cary Grant. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you're right. Once he goes to the once, I don't know if I ever hear him with that voice afterwards because he's he is different. He's looser. He is more of this particular character after that initial scene at his surrogate parents' apartment. And I'm not sure what's going on there, but interesting. Yeah, yeah. Particularly in the so the particularly in the playroom scene. Um, so the very first time they're in the playroom when he comes to before he's going to meet the father. And Catherine Hepburn is in there while the rest of the family has gone to church. And he basically goes up to the second floor or whatever it is and says, I'm lost, help. And then she opens the door to the playroom (laughs) and she's eating an apple and she says to him, do you want a bite? (laughs) And he takes a bite and then he keeps the apple. (laughs) And that whole sequence, the way the choreography of the way they move around the room, the way Catherine Hepburn's character holds up her pet giraffe and says, looks like me. (laughs) And the way she stares at him in those first moments, like she's already in love with him, but particularly the way Johnny explains his character's belief system, which is essentially the thesis of the film. Um, you know, which is I've been working since I was 10. I want to go out and find out why I'm working. And he delivers those, like Matt, like you said, he delivers those lines in this sort of hyper-conversational throwaway way using almost like a little bit of a working-class accent that I've never heard him really (laughs) do before, like where he sort of, he almost sounds a little bit Southern, like where he kind of drops his Gs a little bit. And... (laughs) He's just so charming and so unadorned and so natural. And she's just looking at him like, who is this man? And like, why isn't he mine? And (laughs) that whole sequence, again, just like one of my favorite sequences in any movie ever. I I love that uh, playroom. Um, So it's, it was the, the children's playroom when they were younger um, but it's also kind of been decorated like a like a living room, like a, a middle class living room, and it's very friendly and very inviting. And it's such a contrast to the ostentatious living rooms elsewhere in the house. Um, and so, of course, this is where Catherine's Hep- Catherine Hepburn spends most of her time. Her character spends most of her time there, and I just love the scenes in that in that room. That initial scene that you that you were talking about, Will, but then also later in the film, when you know she and um, uh, Cary Grant's character are there, and then Ned, the brother, is there, and then the Potters are there, and they're just all enjoying themselves and having their own little party. I love that scene, 
And it, it just really kind of exemplifies, you know, one of the points that the, the movie is trying to make, which is that it doesn't take wealth, obviously, to, to find a, a family and, and friends and happiness. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And it's very, you know, it's <clears throat> when you look at a property and you look at it like, you know, done not particularly well, like the 1930 film and then done very well, like the 1938 film. Yes. Part of the credit for that goes to the, you know, Donald Ogden Stewart who did the adaptation, but it has a lot to do with George Cukor who, you know, had worked numerous times with both Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn before this and really has a lot played, a, you know, a big role in sort of establishing their on-screen personas. And it's so clear that he understands not only just how to direct them and how to talk to them and how to get the best performance out of them, but also, like you said, Ashley, to like create these little thematic, these subtextual things that tell the story. Like, yeah, she says, this room is my home. She actually says that line, but it's clear even if she doesn't say it, it's the only homey room in the place. Like he's smart enough to know how to stage that and how to build that and how to make that, make those moments feel like standout moments in the, in the vastness and the coldness of the rest of the film. So something that I, I find very fascinating about this is that I, I like this movie and I think this movie works, but what I find fascinating is the fact that it does work and I'm going to backtrack a little bit and explain what I mean. So we should explain Cary Grant's character comes from a poor background, very working class background. Um, both of his parents died when he was young. They died separately, but you know, when he was at a young age and it's mentioned how he had to kind of, you know, start working early. So in one way, you know, he's missed sort of a, an adolescence or kind of a, almost a part of his childhood, which is, I think one reason why he wants to make enough money to then not have to work at least for a period of time and then go out and just do stuff, see the world, whatever, and find out who he is, figure himself out. Um, and but anyway, he talks about, I think he went to Harvard or something mm -hmm. and yeah. he, he got a good business back uh, background and he's, he's in a, he's working in the financial uh, district there in New York city. And his, he's on the verge. And I think in, during this film, he, he makes his first million or something or whatever, yeah. which, which he's on, he's on the verge of making it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which I looked up in today's money. That'd be about $20 million. So, you know, he's, and so you want, I mean, that's the whole thrust of the, at least the latter part of the movie is, you know, he's like, okay, well, I'm quitting work. I'm going to get on a boat, sail away. And I want you to come with me. First, he says that to the Doris Nolan character. Uh, and then, um, um, uh, Catherine Hepburn eventually, you know, ends up wanting to go. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, what I find fascinating is that they, 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 this is what we're dealing with. And we're dealing with it in 1938, which is like, the height of the Great Depression. Yes. And none of these people are poor. Like, like the, um, the surrogate parents we keep talking about for Cary Grant, the, the, the man, Everett Everett Horton is a, is a university professor. And in fact, at the end of the movie, he's going on a sabbatical, you know, um, his wife is a, is a lecturer. She, Catherine Hepburn's character mentions having seen her at a, you know, giving a lecture once. 
and they live in a, I mean, they don't live in a palatial estate like, uh, Katha Hepburn's family does, but they live in a very, you know, a decent sized, comfortable apartment. Um, Cary Grant is working now in the financial districts. Um, and so this is, this is a, a movie about a guy who in about 2022 dollars is on the verge of getting about 20 million dollars <laughs> and is wanting to then go off and sail the world and find himself. And I, I'm just like, Yet the way that this is framed makes it out like this is like the bourgeois, you know, and, and the whatever. And, and it's, and it's just like, it's just, it's fascinating the way that they make this work. And I, you know, and I, you know, I think that this was moderately successful back in the thirties and I'm, and it, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm surprised that in part of me is surprised that depression era audiences could relate to it if they actually stepped back and took a look at who these characters actually are in the class system. Mm -hmm. But I have to agree. I mean, it, it works. Well, you, you, you explained, I mean, in fact, based on the research that I did for it, you know, when I was writing about it a number of years ago, uh, it, it, it was not a financial success Mm -hmm. and it underperformed. And the reasons that I read for why, people thought it did underperform was because there was a 19% unemployment rate in the United States in 1938. Mm -hmm. And here you have a guy (laughs) who is like, you know, millions of dollars and like a cushy life. Nah, not interested. (laughs) Right. I'm going to be a no on that. And, you know, I mean, it, it was neither relatable nor escapist for 1938 audiences. And they do, they do a good job of like, you know, sort of toning down the fact that what exactly it is that that he's giving up because a vast majority of people in 1938 would have been like, I'll take it, you know, (laughs) sign me up. But yeah, he's turning down, you know, basically the life of a, of, of a millionaire, of a multimillionaire. And for me, that makes it, and by the way, so the, the Potters, yeah, they have a big apartment, but they also make it clear that they live on 114th Street because he's a Columbia professor. So they're way north of Manhattan in a, in a neighborhood where you can still get affordable apartments even today. But, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I do think the fact that he's 100% prepared to give up this substantial amount of money and this very, very cushy life in order to be true to himself. That's a, that's a core message of the film. And it's also a relatable message. I mean, it's like, you know, I think the reason certain films resonate and remain relevant for viewers is because they can find relatable things in them. It's like, no, maybe you never took a, like, maybe you never, flew to Oz in a house during a tornado, but you did feel out of place and you did want to, you know, whatever, find friends to support you and get you back to your home. So, you know, for me, it's like I once, when I was 30, uh, I took a holiday. It's like I was, I spent my twenties like working like crazy and, you know, having an important job and making a lot of money. And then I was like, fuck that. I'm going to like go become a stand-up comedian. And then I became like a stand-up comedian and 
lived on hot dogs and M&Ms for like four years. So, you know, I think you find relatable things and audiences may not have found that in 1938, but they certainly have found it Mm -hmm. in the years since, you know? And it's like, if you think about it, this particular moment in history, the great resignation, right? That's what we're, that's what they're calling this moment that we're in now. The great resignation where people who survived COVID and, and the pandemic and all that are like, do I really want to give up my entire life for a company that doesn't really care about me and is going to just lay me off the first opportunity they get? Mm-hmm. This is a really relatable story for the era that we're in for, for people who work flex time and freelance and from home. And it's just relatable in so many ways, I think. Sure. Can we talk a little bit about um, Catherine Hepburn? <laughs> sure. Um, so Catherine Hepburn is my favorite actress. Um, Wait, did you say is my favorite or it isn't? Is my favorite. All right, good, because I was about to like hang up on this. <laughs> no, no, no. She is my favorite actress. Um, I'm not going to argue that she's maybe the best actress that ever was. Um, I don't know if I believe that, but... She's my favorite actress. I just, I just love her. I love, there's something about her, her style, her confidence, her intelligence. Um, you, you know, you could argue that she, she kind of plays Catherine Hepburn in every role. Some people, some people make that argument, but I always feel that she kind of chooses these characters because they, they kind of fit her. And, but she, she has a vulnerability to her that she's able to, um, to give these characters. And, and I think this role in particular, she plays this confident, um, woman who is standing up to her father. Um, but there's so much vulnerability there too. I think this is one of her best performances. Um, I'm just curious to, to know what you guys think. I do think it's one of her best performances. Um, I'm not actually sure you, how many Catherine Hepburn movies I've seen. I want to say probably less than I think I have, but I've seen several. Mm-hmm. I find her um, hit and miss, honestly. Hopefully, Will doesn't hang up. But you know, I, I find her a little hit and miss, and just in the sense of there are times when I watched her in movies, and I feel like I'm watching her acting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't feel that with this. She seemed very natural, very whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm, that's my that's my thing on there. One question I do have, real quick, and this I've been wanting to ask this during this episode is. So you've already kind of alluded to the fact that Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant's characters get together at the end. They, they acknowledge or realize that, yeah, they're who they want to be with or whatever. But it's not until like the very end, right? Do you, well, like, I'm going to throw this over to you, Will. Do you think, what do you, just if you had to imagine going forward, do you think that they make it? Do you think they stay together or do you think that this is just something that they're, you know, maybe, maybe they're together for weeks or months and then that's it? Well, I, so I'll answer that in a second, but I also want to just reply to what, what Ashley said. She's my favorite as well. And um, I do agree that she's better sometimes than others. And I usually attribute that to, you know, to the director. Um, but she, I mean, she breaks my heart in this movie because the the way that she sort of navigates between like petulance and and pathos you know and she's so nakedly vulnerable and she's like she's clearly 
an unhappy, borderline, like agoraphobic, disturbed person who is desperate, desperate for a way out. And if, if any of you have in the audience have known children of rich people, I mean, it can be very difficult to exist knowing that you're never going to, you can never beat your parents because you're in this case, the father is like one of the richest men in the country. Um, and that sort of just, you know, can paralyze people. Um, you know, I didn't have that problem. My father was a, you know, foreman at a bus company and I, you know, knew I was going to, whatever, I had the potential to do better than him and make more money. But as for do they, um, it's interesting because in the last scene of this movie, they do get together. Sorry, spoiler again. (laughs) In the last scene of the 1930 movie, they don't even give you that. It's Anne Harding hopping in a cab to go to the boat to meet him. And you don't even know if she's going to make the boat. (laughs) So, and do I think they stay together? A hundred percent. I think they stay together because they are psychically, intellectually, and emotionally aligned in a way that, you know, that Johnny's is not in any way with the other sister. Um, However, if you want to fantasize about a reality where um, where Johnny and Linda got together and it didn't work, <laughs> watch Holiday and then put in the Criterion Blu-ray of the Philadelphia story. <laughs> because it's with the same leads, same director, same uh, guy adapting a play by the same playwright, Philip Barry. So the DNA, the entire thing, entirely the same DNA. And it's like, you know, uh, Cary Grant, where in Holiday, he's sort of guileless and goofy. Now in Philadelphia's story, he's sort of angry and bitter because it didn't work out and he had high hopes. And, you know, it's really fun to watch the two movies back to back, which I did last night on both on the Criterion Blu-rays. Um, so you can see like, oh, so this is like the sequel if it didn't work. Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an assignment for those of you in the audience. And if you don't, <laughs> and if you don't have the Blu-rays, um, uh, Holiday is streaming on the Criterion channel this month and it and Philadelphia Story is streaming on HBO Max this month. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Which I also mentioned too, Hollow the title, I mean, it kind of has uh, multiple meanings uh, because this movie takes place around the holidays, Christmas, and particularly on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bulk of it takes place on New Year's Eve. Uh, but then, I mean, Cary, Grant, Cary Grant's character even mentions in here that, you know, he, he wants to go on a holiday. Like, meaning that's what his trip, I guess, abroad um, is about. To, to. So I have Matt. I wrote down a question for for you guys. Mm-hmm. What what does the holiday of the title refer to? <laughs> I think it has a I think it has a dual meaning: the holidays, and then his holiday that he wants to go on. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it could mean also a holiday from from materialism. I don't know if you you, you could you could read more deeply into it. I I don't know. What do you think it means, Will? Well, I mean, he does. First of all, it could also mean the holiday 
that he and and Julia just came back from where oh, yeah, they hooked up. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, it's very clear. It's like when once the code took effect, you couldn't imply that two people who are unmarried hooked up, but it's very clear in that first scene when he's like pawing her and she's like, behave yourself and he shuts the door. So clear that they hooked up on that oh, yeah. <laughs> vacation. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, <laughs> whatever, I think it's, you know, and by the way, that first scene at church, if you do the math based on the dialogue, that scene is probably Christmas mass. Because he comes home and they say, or Catherine Hepburn's character says, uh, New Year's Eve is Saturday, right? Mm -hmm. Which would mean that if that's Sunday, that's got to be Christmas Day. Because if everyone just came back from church Mm -hmm. and New Year's Eve is Saturday, Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, so so is is Holiday a Christmas movie? (laughs) There you go. Is it? Yeah. Could be, sure. Die Hard's a Christmas movie, so you know. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about Lou Ayers, um, who plays um, uh, Ned, Catherine Hepburn's brother in this movie. So it's interesting. Let me backtrack for a second. Um, you know, one of the good things about the Criterion physical media is it comes a lot. I mean, they restore the movies that they put out, and they also give you supplements, meaning like special features and stuff. And on the holiday Blu-ray, in addition to the 1930 version that the, they give you in the supplemental material, there's also an interview from like 2019. It's, it's two guys talking. I don't really, I've never heard of them before, but apparently they're people who have good opinions about <laughs> film. And maybe that's my ignorance talking there, but um, it's about a 30 minute session where the two of them talk about this movie. And um, I found it interesting. Like, they didn't talk, I mean, they talked about the character of Ned, but they didn't talk about one particular aspect, which Ashley and I sort of talked about when we were watching it, although we are two gay men, so maybe that's just us, but, and that's the fact that is Ned a coded gay character in this, ah. in this movie? <laughs> um, like I said, those two guys on the Criterion special features said nothing about that whatsoever. Right. But, you know, if you Google, some around you can find like stuff online where people postulate that maybe he he was but i mean he's he's very unhappy and you know so the interesting thing about movies from a long time ago is they sometimes did try to insert gay characters but they couldn't outwardly do so right mm-hmm. even though george cukor the director was a gay man but they um they would then do coded references right um and so one of the, so you could actually interpret it in a way that's, oh, no, no, they're not gay at all. But like, so this character of Ned is very unhappy. But on the surface, you think, oh, well, he's unhappy because he's working, uh, I don't, I don't, either with his father or at a job his father got for him, but in the financial um, district. And it's not, you can tell it's not maybe really what he wants to do, but this is what the family business is. And so he's stuck in a job that he doesn't like and he drinks a lot. And so, you know, ostensibly you're like, okay, so this guy's in an unhappy job. He's not, he's not able to, for whatever reason, do what Cary Grant's character is doing or Catherine Hepburn's character is doing. And so that's why he drinks. But you also never see him with 
he's never attached to a woman. You never hear about a woman in his life and nobody ever even broaches it to him. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Right. And he seems to be kind of a sensitive character, right? He plays piano. He, he, at one time he was working on writing a concerto, but he has to, but instead of doing all that, he has to work with his father and, you know, in the family, family business. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's hints there, but yeah. what do you think, Will? I think that's uh, honestly, I think that's a dead on insight. Um, at whatever, as a straight man, it never occurs to me to, or at least it never occurred to me in this case, but um, he's definitely the way they present Ned is different in the 1930 film versus the, you know, like Kukor and, uh, you know, and the, and uh, Donald Ogden Stewart added this whole sort of like artistic component Mm -hmm. to his character. And he's, I think I yes I, I I do think that there's coding there. I do think that there's subtext there. Um, I think that's a it's a great point and a good catch. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I I I was actually really moved by that character, and particularly on the second viewing. There are just moments where his sadness is almost it's unbearable, particularly when when Catherine Hepburn is finally leaving. She's making her way out and. She says, I'll come back for you. And he, he just kind of looks down and says, I'll be here. It's like he, he's like, he's lost hope kind of. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that character to be very uh, sympathetic. And when he does the soliloquy, like when she's like, what's it like to be drunk? And he says, and then she said, what happens next? And then he's like, and then you die and that's okay. And I was like, holy mackerel. <laughs> that's, that's some heavy, that's heavy stuff. And he's played uh, the guy who plays him. You'll recognize if you watch Precoach, you'll watch the guy who plays him in the 1930 movie. I think his name is Monroe Owsley because he plays a he plays like a cad, like an opportunist or a grifter in a bunch of Precoach movies. But he plays Ned basically as just a kind of angry, petulant, rich boy. There's not this sort of huge pathos mm-hmm. that Lou Ayers brings to it. But Lou Ayers was like, I mean, giving Lou Ayers like the fifth build role in a movie is like, you know, it's like putting Lou Gehrig eighth in your batting order. I mean, he's like, he's a, this is a, it's a deep, this movie has a deep bench. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I used two sports. That's <laughs> which is too, too many. But um, anyway. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I don't mean to like go back onto the whole, like, fascinated by how this movie works thing but like i was sitting there in that scene it's a very kind of tugs that you've seen where toward the end Catherine hepburn's character you know so the the doris nelson character is like she's decided she's not going to go with carrie grant because she likes to be rich and comfortable <laughs> um and then Catherine hepburn's like oh well i'm gonna go then i'm gonna go with him and and so and she tries to get ned her brother to go with and that's when you know He's like, I, I can't. And, you know, you talked about you talked about that well, Ashley. But I was sitting there like, well, why can't he? And that's the thing. Okay, here's, again, what I was trying to figure out. It's like, okay, so at a certain point in this movie, this character, I can't remember the name of the character, but he, he basically informs Cary Grant. He's like, hey, congrats. Like, this deal you were working on went through. And that's when Cary Grant kind of becomes this millionaire. Which, again, in today's money, he gets about 20 million bucks. 
And so that's why in the back half of the movie, it's all about Cary Grant being like, okay, well, I'm off on a sailing mission <laughs> to find myself. And, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, in, in 2022 money and like $20 million, you don't ever really have to work again if you manage your money right. So he can either find himself and then come back and into society and work, or he could just not and live very comfortably. So Cary Grant's set, Catherine Hepburn, it's a little unclear to me if her father, I mean, nowhere is it ever said, I don't think that her father's going to cut her off if she leaves. But I was wondering, like, is he or, or not? But the fact that she's, she's part of a wealthy family. So she's set. So her and Cary Grant are going off to live a very comfortable finding themselves <laughs> life. And then Lou Ayers, the Ned character, I'm like, so why can't he do the same? I mean, he, A, he's got a wealthy, he's, he works in the financial uh, you know, profession. And two, he is part of a wealthy family. The only difference I can see is that he's a man and in 1938 America, like, and who knows, maybe even 2022 America, like, I don't know. There's just a different expectation. Maybe, maybe in 1938, the wo- a woman could go off and do this, but it would, it was just more pressure on a man not to. Uh, it was a little unclear, but, Honestly, the whole the whole undercurrent there is for the movie to happen. Having Ned back, can you imagine? So the end of the movie, when Catherine Hepburn gets to the boat that Cary Grant's sailing off of, and she sees him, and they, you know, they meet up and they kiss. Because um, the surrogate parents are also there, but they make themselves scarce. Mm-hmm. It'd be kind of awkward if Ned was just there too. Like, can you imagine Ned showing up with her, and then he just kind of stands there awkwardly while her and Cary Grant kiss? And uh, I don't know. So. <laughs> Wait, so are, but uh, so are you saying that you like it's interesting and you don't buy it or you do buy it? I'm sort of in the middle. I don't I don't mean to cop out on that, but I'm I'm sitting here trying to come up with reasons why Ned doesn't leave as well because my whole thing is like if Catherine Hepburn could leave, Ned could leave too. It's not it's not clear to me why he can't unless like I said some sort of gender dynamics are at play and the expectation yeah, is there for him to say. I, I think he's a weaker character. He, in some, you know, it's ironic because men at this time in history, certainly men were more powerful and could make more choices on their own mm-hmm. than women. But in this movie, you have a woman who's making this decision that he doesn't seem to be able to bring himself to make, which is to push back against his father, against what his father wants, against what their father wants. Mm. Um, I don't know. That, that, I guess that's my take on it. But, Will, I don't know what you think. Well, all right. So I, I, I have to go back again to the, like, whatever, personal relatability issue. Having been in a relationship with someone who came from a wealthy family, <laughs> um, I saw the way when you are a child of a rich person and essentially on the payroll – Right. And I'm not I don't I'm not telling any tales out of school or whatever, but it's like you lose to a certain degree, you lose your you can lose your identity, you know, and your ability to almost to function as a autonomous person. And I think that's where he is in life. I don't think he believes he is capable. It's like he's whatever, 30 years old. The idea that he's going to just like throw it all away and go out and make his own life. I don't think he feels emotionally capable of doing that. 
And I say that based on things I've witnessed by, you know, it's like my ex-girlfriend's father once said, told me that I wasn't living up to my earning potential. (laughs) Right. Which is like a fucking line out of this play. (laughs) It's like, I'm living, you know, anyway, but it's, sorry, this turned into a therapy session. But, <laughs> but it's, it's part of the core truth. It's like one of the beware, one of the like cautionary aspects of this story is if you're a wealthy parent, how you, how you treat your children and how you, the extent to which you interfere in their lives, the extent to which, to which you control their lives is a very important consideration. I mean, because this guy, the dad in this movie, like treats them still like they're 13 or 15 years old, whatever. You know, he still calls them, he refers to them as children. It's like, you children go home. You know, it's like he does nothing to help them become autonomous adults. You know, it's basically, they're going to be his children until he dies. And until they inherit his money, you know, and it's like they're not capable of living and on their own. And I think Lou Ayers does an amazing job of, you know, playing that moment and not having it be pathetic. You know, it's like it's powerful, it's resonant, but it's not he's not petulant. You know, he's not the poor little rich boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's another really strong performance in a film that's full of them, I think. Yeah. This movie, I mean, this is due to like the writing, obviously, but um, the movie has a lot of strong female characters in it. And I was reading about George Cukor and how, I guess, in the industry, he was referred to as a woman's director, Mm -hmm. which apparently was sort of a dual meaning and... On the one hand, it was kind of complimentary, meaning that, you know, he, he knew how to direct women really well. Like he worked with women well, particularly, I guess, sometimes women that were considered um, difficult to deal with, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, like Kate, like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, he worked well with, with female actors, but it was also a bit of a slur, I guess, back, uh, or meant as a slur in that it was sort of to kind of, uh, acknowledge that he was gay and, and, um, he's like, uh, uh, yeah. So apparently, I guess it was meant as a slur back then. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's both. I guess you know, he. Um, it is true that he, whatever, got performances out of Catherine Hepburn that that other directors couldn't. Uh, you know, um, but he also like, you know, but he was also like a, a stylist in many ways. You know, he. Um, it's. He started out as a stage director and his early work in in movies was back in the days when they would have two directors on a film, a dialogue director who would direct the actors and a director director who was directing the crew and the camera. And he was a dialogue director in his early days because of his theater background. And so I think that's also in part sort of how he got the reputation of being, you know, good with actors and good with dialogue and whatever, because that's how he got his start. Um, but he had an, a, he worked with Catherine Hepburn 10 times over nearly 50 years. 
And I have a, I have a quote I have to share with you. She, what she said about what Kate said about George Cukor, we have the same taste, the same sense of values. We're aiming for the same thing. We work together so closely. I don't know where I begin and he ends. I mean, that's, that's a hell of a thing to say about, you know, somebody else, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly somebody who's like essentially in charge of you on when you work together. Yeah. I was looking at his, um, his filmography and I, I didn't realize that I, I honestly did not know when he passed away or how, how late, but you know, it was like in the 1980s um, is when he died, but I didn't realize that he had directed this Catherine Hepburn movie in 1979 called the corn is green, which yeah, TV I, movie. Uh, yeah. I've heard mixed things about, but it was interesting. They were still working together, you know, in, in, into almost into the eighties. And he, you know, and he also like, he also directed movie, a film like Gaslight, you know, which is, I mean, yes, it's a woman's story because it's a, whatever about the Ingrid Bergman character, but, you know, it's a creepy, stylish film also. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was still directing as late as like, I think his last movie was like Rich and Famous with, uh, I need to check that, but with like Jacqueline Bassett, um, <laughs> you know, in 19, whatever that was, like, 1980 or 79, 81, Rich and Famous. His final film was Rich and Famous in 1981. So it's like he must have been doing something right to work as as long as he did and, you know, whatever, be as respected as he was, you know. So do you have a favorite George Cukor movie? Uh, can I say this? <laughs> sure. No, I mean, I, uh, so it's like, I, you know, I... I was going to do a whole like screed about like, which is my favorite holiday or, or Philadelphia story because they are, they're both comedies with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn directed by George Cukor based on plays by Philip Barry, adapted (laughs) by, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they, and there's even like, you mentioned the evil sort of like, borderline fascist character in holiday the cousin that she spits like she talks about spitting on when they were little children mm-hmm. his name is his name is seton cram he's played by the the character actor henry danielle who often played nazis and fascists henry danielle is also in philadelphia story as the creepy editor of the magazine who black who's blackmailing the Lord family into allowing him to cover their wedding. Um, but anyway, it's like um, Philadelphia story and holiday are basically sort of like kind of two different sides of the coin for me. So it's like holiday is sort of halfway between the sort of contrived madness of bringing up baby and the like, the sort of more refined but funnier comedy of the Philadelphia story. Um, I find Philadelphia story to be laugh out loud funny. Like every time I watch it, there are moments I laugh out loud. I don't really laugh out loud about holiday because it's sad. There's a lot of sadness in it. And I don't, I can't shake that sadness to be like, you know, yeah, they helped by adding Edward Everett Horton and like expanding his character and giving him bits and shtick to do. 
So I guess I would say, what's my favorite George Cukor film? It's both of these two, like, together, if we're going to consider them to be sort of Philadelphia story to be like an unofficial sequel to Holiday, you know? That's cool. Yeah, I'm, I, I wanted to loop back to, to something you just brought up. Um, the Henry Danielle character in this movie. So what's going on there? Like, um, there's a, they give him the Nazi salute. Well, yes. And I'm like, is that what I think it is? And, and it sure is. And is that because they think he's a fascist? Not only that, but Susan, the wife of Edward Everett Horton's character, like when he says, and you'd be even richer if we had the right kind of government. Mm-hmm. And she's like, the right kind of government emulating what country? Mm-hmm. So, and this is 1938, so there's no question what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they're giving him the Hitler, you know, the Heil Hitler salute. I mean, it's very clear what's happening there. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was, I was just like, wow. I, yeah. You don't expect to see that in a romantic comedy, right? <laughs> no. Um, and maybe I need to, you know, I mean, I've seen a fair amount of movies from this era, but maybe I need to see more. But, you know, when you watch a lot of movies that are particularly produced just a few years later, like in the forties mm-hmm. or early to mid forties that are about what's going on in the European theater, um, you know, i.e. World War II, it's kind of all about combat, right? And like this land is occupied and these people are afraid. And, and that's certainly a very, um, a big part of what that war was. But you often, I feel like I don't often, or I haven't at least come across as much pe- people talking about the, the, um, clash of, uh, morals, uh, the clash of morality, the clash of ideals, the, cl- you know, and, and what these governments actually stood for, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of cool to see that in this movie, even if it's just touched upon yeah. briefly. Well, and apparently like Donald Ogden Stewart, Donald Ogden Stewart was very, uh, the, the writer who adapted the play for this film very politically active, politically, you know, aware. And apparently like his first draft of the script included much more of this sort of thing. Hmm. And whether or not Cooper filmed it or, or it didn't even make it to, you know, the shooting script, but there was more of it. So I think this is, I read either, I read this or I, it was in that special feature that you mentioned on the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. but, um, but there was more of this in the shooting script. Mm-hmm. And they pulled it back, which is interesting. I know one thing that was they mentioned in that supplemental feature that was uh, a scene that was shot and they actually destroyed it was uh, they shot an opening scene that was uh, Cary Grant and the uh, Doris Nelson character at Lake Placid mm-hmm. um, when they met or were on their first holiday. Um, and I guess they decided maybe to that wasn't the way to start the movie. <laughs> well, which which on, on, speaks to what you felt about that tacked on first scene. You felt like it was tacked on mm-hmm. because it was tacked on. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine if they had tacked on a second scene as well. Yeah. yeah. So any closing thoughts on the holiday? Will? Um, I could do an hour of, you know, whatever I, I could talk about this movie forever. I could talk about, the Philadelphia story forever. Um, it just, you know, it's inspired me 
I've loved old movies since I was little, and this movie has been like an inspir- a, a, a life inspiration for me, um, for literally for my like adult life, and to the detriment of my frankly bank account. <laughs> You know, and to the detriment of my relationship, for example, with my ex-girlfriend's father. Mm. Um, but it's been like a, a guiding force for me. And um, I think that people, a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, I will admit that like the Philadelphia story, Philadelphia story takes a little bit of work to watch. It's a little bit longer. There's a lot going on. It's. It's not a frothy, bop, 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 you know, like 1930s comedy. You have to commit yourself. You have to pay attention. You have to immerse yourself in it. It's a little bit of work. In a similar way, in a similar fashion, Holiday is not a light watch. There's a under, as we've discussed, and Ashley, you talked about, there's like, there's a lot of darkness in this, but I think if you watch it today, you will find so much that resonates with contemporary life. And you'll also develop an appreciation for two people who I think are the single best male and female star of the classic film era, um, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. Uh, so I just cannot recommend this movie highly enough. Um, and Thank God it's available, you know, and in looking good, this transfer looks so good. It's like, you know, it's a new 4K transfer on the Criterion Blu-ray. It's got like lots of grain. It just looks really, really good. Beautiful presentation from Criterion. And if you don't want to like take the plunge of buying the physical media, just watch it on the channel. It's like, you know, it will, you will, it will, it may affect you in a very, very powerful way. I hope it will. Yeah, well, it did me, and I, I really loved it when I first watched it just a couple of months ago, and I'm glad we got to see it again because I think it even um, increased in my estimation. And certainly after this discussion, um, I think I love it even even more. So highly recommend this movie. Yeah. So, Will, what would you give this out of 10? Um. I could say 10, but, you know, um, for the reason that Ashley pointed out, I think it was Ashley, right, who said that uh, Doris Nolan is Julia, like, you just don't totally, <laughs> or was it Matt? Who, anyway, but you just don't totally buy, she's the one, like, weak link in the chain for me of this movie. So I guess I, in that sense, I'll give it a, I'll give it a nine. Because otherwise, I think it's just a perfect film. Yeah, I'll give it uh, an eight and a half. How about you, Ashley? I'll give it a nine and a half. All right. Look at you! You beat. <laughs> I can't believe you give my favorite movie. You gave it a better score. <laughs> <laughs> so our score is a nine, um, and so yeah, that is Holiday. And Will, uh, thank you as always for joining us. My pleasure. I would. I love to talk about this stuff. So maybe I'll come back again exactly one year from today. <laughs> and is this the part where I sing Ave Maria? Because I, <laughs> my, my nieces are going to be my backing chorus behind me. So anyway. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I always love it. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you.
Gracias.